0: Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. A dozen cinematic delights are heading your way from the Warner Archive Collection as we celebrate our 12 new releases for this week. Matt,
1: Dan, let's start off the procession. Buckle your swashes, folks, because we're back to the high seas. I would say fire your cannons, pump the bilges. Sabotage. Sabotage. The first film we are bringing you Ah! is The Spanish Main from 1945. I'm now thinking of plows. I'm on the farm. A ship plows through the ocean. Take it from the son of a sailor.
2: So we're starting with the RKO film, Spanish Main. Spanish Main, 1945. Now, my first thought here was this is a 1945 Technicolor festival. This is the first
1: RKO film
0: produced by RKO.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Note the facts, cinephiles. Right. This is the first RKO production, feature production in Technicolor.
2: Now, what's cool is that uh, it starts up, the little RKO thing beeps, beep, 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 and it looks like somebody hand-painted some colors over the RKO titles. And my thought at home was, oh, no, am I accidentally watching a colorized video? Thankfully, the Horrors of colorization were nowhere to be
0: found. Thank You, were, you are right. That's exactly what they did do. Hand-tinted
2: titles. It was really neat. But this is, to me, what really was very noticeable was that color seemed to be very new to the production people and the ocean was this, like, weird blue and people wore these very green cloaks and mustardy yellows. But it actually sort of enhanced the drama for me because it, it felt like... I too was now in an uncharted new world with these uh, Dutch uh, pirates. I prefer to think of them as Dutch freedom fighters. This takes place, uh, what, in the 1600s, 1600s? More or less. 16th century, <laughs> I believe. Okay, 1500s. And a Dutch colony ship, they're supposed to be going to the Carolinas, is blown off course and goes to Cartagena, where the local Spanish governor wants to enslave the survivors. And our man, Dutchman played by Dan. Paul Henried. Who is not a usual choice for a hero, do you think?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. He's not, a, he's not a usual choice for a swashbuckler, but he's a very, often plays a very noble character.
2: And so he nobly escapes and becomes a pirate and then is a plague on the house of Cartagena.
1: Now there's... Something in common between this film and its matched pair Swatchbuckler and Goldlust that that too uh, that would be a certain red-tressed co-star Maureen O'Hara. Oh, but here's something else is interesting as we were talking about this film. Neither of you recognize that there's yet another thing the two films have in common. Alan
0: Jenkins. <laughs> I
1: wish, but a close second Walter Slezak. Ah. Wow. Don't you
0: guys know that this boat is going to sink? <laughs>
1: and, and, and in our next pair of films, not to get too far ahead, Spanish Main was directed by Frank Borzegui, and mm-hmm. he also directed something in The next, in our film next that pair. we're going to talk about. So let's get right. back to our swashbucklers in order. So Spanish Main. The main Man, subject. Spanish Main, Maureen O'Hara, freedom-fighting Dutch pirates out of the Cartagenas and the Carolinas. And then that brings us to the next film, the Eighth Voyage of Sinbad? Oh, no, no. This is probably the first voyage of Sinbad. At least in talkydom.
2: Yes. I just like saying the eighth because there were the seven voyages. And in this, Sinbad, played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., doing an impression of his dad.
1: More or less and doing it very well. Sort of kind of and having a great Yeah, I mean this, is, this film deserves to be classed right with... Any, when you think of, like, Captain Blood, anything like that, Simbae the Sailor's right up there with a little bit more of a kind of roguey thing going on.
2: And this one was also in color, but I feel like two years later they got the color right.
1: Yeah, it was
0: far more polished of a production than Spanish Marine, but both of them are kind of known together because RKO's forays into color were still very, very few and far between at that time.
1: And uh, Sinbad the Sailor, directed by Richard, uh, Wallace. Richard Wallace. Keep your eyes peeled for a young actor by the name of Anthony Quinn.
2: And the, the fun thing about this version of Sinbad was that uh, Sinbad was known as a, a teller of tall tales – And he has these seven voyages behind him, and nobody in the world here takes him too seriously because they think he's just making everything up. Because this Sinbad world is not necessarily full of magic and magical creatures, although you feel that it could exist in the periphery. There's
1: a Munchausen quality to this Sinbad. Yes. As opposed to a Harryhausen
2: quality. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. He's not fighting literal giant monsters, but he's fighting the monsters within. Greed and, and lust. A housing is not
1: a home. <laughs> uh, fans of the Adam West Batman show should also keep an eye peeled for Alan Napier, who played Alfred. And who will be popping up again in future
0: Warner Archive releases. But for now... Ooh, a tantalizing I, glimpse of there's, tomorrow. There's a little are, spoiler for Are we going
2: to have the, the Alfred files?
0: <laughs> the Alfred Nobel files, yes. Wow. But in any event, Ooh, these, a, these two films have been highly requested by fans and make their North American DVD debut from DVD Warner Day Archive. DVD debut's de- for you! Selections. I just want
2: to sum it up. As it's got swords... It's got catapults of Greek fire.
0: Yes. Action, chills, thrills, laughs, and Maureen O'Hara, vibrant, lusty, and gorgeous in Technicolor.
2: And with the same hairstyle that spans the ages.
0: Same hairstyle that she had in the let-your-hair-down moments of The Parent Trap. But the, these were a lot of fun. And great films that we're delighted to be bringing you. Now, we move on to The Sound of Silence. Shh.
2: We're going to observe a moment of silence,
0: something we don't do here. People love when we bring silent films out through the Warner Archive Collection, and this week we have two from the hallowed halls of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The first being The Circle.
2: Now, let me just say, because we were talking about silence, these films are, of course not actually silent, but have two uh, different scores. These were original scores created a few years ago,
0: and they're stereophonic scores from young composers, and uh, made their debut with these scores on Turner Classic Movies, and now are making their home
1: video debut for Warner Archive Collection.
2: First, we'll talk about The Circle. The
1: Circle, uh, adapted from the play by Somerset Maugham. Circle gets the square. <laughs> uh, directed by Frank Borzeghi, who directed Spanish Main, and many other fine entertainments. Why, well, actually, both these films had a number of delightful surprises in them. The second film, which we'll talk to in a second, perhaps less so, because as soon as I saw the star and the director, I had a feel for what to expect. Oh, you you weren't surprised. But, but the circle, and I was unfamiliar with the source play material. But yeah. some say "Mom usually a clue that no, this isn't going to be a, a torrid melodrama." But no, but, uh, but it a, has a a the framing of it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Cause, cause, the original
0: title was "Of Human Circledom."
1: Oh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the, the the circle's edge.
1: The structure to it is a
2: little more Edith Wharton-y. It's like about a, it's
1: it's a framed story, right?
2: Of generations making the same. Possibly it making the same yeah, In the in of the love.
1: in the film's prologue, the young lady Catherine, played by the very young Joan Crawford in first second film, one role, of maybe her one of the very earliest, earliest. Jones, yeah. runs away with her lover, the oddly titled Lord Portentus, <laughs> well. and then thirty years later. Son, Le- leaving her son, leaving and her five-year-old son or young son in uh, this manner. Leaving her, yeah. Oh, Anna Kareninina. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Now, thirty years <laughs> later, Kareninia. her young son is now also married with a wife that is also thinking of straying. Yes. So the wife that is thinking of straying invites the mother that abandoned her child thirty years and her lover to the manor in order that she may see what the effects of abandonment right.
2: are. But which, by the way, brilliant pop psychology. On yes. Her part.
1: But and of course, the son, the grown-up son, is is hasn't seen his mother for thirty years. and Has already worked up about that. But is relieved that his father, the who was abandoned, will be away in London that weekend. But of course, because this is a drawing room cynical comedy of manners of sorts, he returns to the mansion too.
2: So it's going to be a big reunion between everybody abandoned child his dad who raised him, the mother who left him, and the man who took the mother away, plus his friend who is right. contemplating and he's aware of leaving with his wife. So that's that's pretty fraught.
0: The film stars Eleanor Boardman, who later became Mrs. King Vidor, mm-hmm. and uh, co-starred in The Crowd, which is a very famous film. And also in this film is Eugenie Besserer, who played Al Jolson's mother in The Jazz Singer. Oh. So if people recognize, I know that lady from someplace, but I can't. So she may have that. seen something soon. That's right. Soon. Actually, that year. Outside the family circle.
1: <laughs> After seeing the film and reading about it, I, I, I made notice of people oh, saying no, that that, that, year, that the uh, the film had changed the ending of the play, which, of course, led me to seek out the play. And I'll tell you... The film actually doesn't really change the ending of the play but the adapter of the film very cleverly finds a way to insert something that occurs off stage in the play and it is his invention, not mom's, but it actually totally dovetails
2: within the play. The incident at the end. Yeah, with the, when, when with the fight. There, there's, there,
1: yes, yes. Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. that was a that, that was, was the great part. Uh, yeah, because you
2: didn't expect
1: that. not not to spoil, so to speak, uh, obtusely True. about it. Uh, I'm spoiling it. It was good. in the play. Somebody says, "Oh, they must have left with the chauffeur."
2: Right, because that happens off-screen if it was a yeah. play. Yeah. and then
1: in the movie, Thank you. we're allowed to see Adoy. what actually happens on that car ride. And uh, it actually works really great. And yeah. you'll notice that the, the film quality
0: Mom. itself is really quite good. Oh, and that's yeah. because this is one of the few MGM silent films where the original negative didn't perish in the tragic fire that took so many. <laughs> this one was wow. spared, and some new preservation elements have been made by Warner Brothers... And from those elements came this new master and the new score, and uh, a a shining circle of restoration as we bring it out on DVD, which is a circle in and of itself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The next film is 1927's The Show, and this stars John Gilbert, is directed by Todd Browning, names familiar to Warner Archive fans from previous John Gilbert and Todd Browning releases, including Fast Workers which we just put out a couple Mm -hmm. of months ago which was a talkie but I really love this film and I'm very much anxious to hear what you guys have to say about it.
2: Todd Browning must have had something about Hungary. Hungary and carnivals. carnivals. Yeah, and carnivals. It was fascinating, but I I really wanted to become a sheep farmer after this, because the the moral of the story here is there is a lot of money in sheep. But how many times did you say flock, and how many times did you say sheep? That's an in-joke,
0: folks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
2: I just might have been fleeced. (laughs)
0: Now you got the jokes. <laughs> so,
2: let's talk so, about the plot here a little let's bit. Let's talk, because tell, it's tell, quite a
1: story. The story of the show is John Gilbert plays the Ballyhoo man. Oh, Ballyhoo. Who entices people into the show, but he also has a role in the show in that he plays the John the Baptist character in a, a reenactment of Salome's Beheading of John the Baptist. And he's got yes. a
0: very interesting name Cock yeah. Robin. Right, and in fact, the working title of this movie was
1: supposed to be Cock of the Walk. Sideshow freaks, twisted love triangles. It's the best kind of show. Pass to redemption. First of all. John Gilbert playing a cad and not a matinee idol. Right. And doing it superbly. It starts out that you see
2: this little, that this guy's a scammer.
1: Yeah, and who plays the bad guy? Who does? The king of sneers, Lionel Barrymore. You mean it isn't Alan Jenkins? (laughs) <laughs> Not today. Look, there's plenty of Alan Jenkins in there's our future. There's more to come. <laughs> yeah. Leading
0: lady in this film is Renee Adore, who was John Gilbert's leading Lady in The Big Parade, 1925. film that really put him on the map big time and one of the most important silent films in uh, MGM's history. And they were re-teamed for this film, and Gilbert later felt that that was more of a commercial exploitation of bringing them back when... Like stunt casting. Yeah. This is when he was going through his resentment period, I think. Well, you shouldn't have felt that way, because she was terrific. She was, and if if I hadn't read that in his biography, I wouldn't have known it, because their chemistry is yes, really, terrific. Yeah, quite
1: really... She's quite well, screen-catching. S- you could see the attraction. Yes,
2: yes. And then what happens is, is within this world, there are other characters, namely somebody called The Greek, who is even a bigger scammer and more dangerous one?
1: John Gilbert sort of plays an unrepentant rake. Mm-hmm. The Salome of his show falls for him, but he couldn't yes. care less. But in no. turn, the Greek is enraged that Salome's eyes have fallen on Cock Robin. So Cock Robin gets set up for
2: a fall, shall we say? Yes, and she has to hide him.
1: There's an arresting climax, literally involving an iguana. Now, yeah, I now have to say... Not,
2: I just want to say, first off, Dan, I'm going to take the side of the filmmakers here. Okay. This was not an iguana. It was supposed to be like an evil uh, serpent of some kind. And we show yeah. this evil serpent killing somebody with its poisonous fangs.
1: Now, having grown up with an iguana, I can tell you, A, that
2: is an iguana,
1: and B, iguanas don't act like
2: that. The ASPCA might have not been on the set at the time. Yeah. However... Although it looked like an iguana on the That inside, was an iguana. On the inside it was acting What
1: was it? The Hungarian Komodo Dragon? Yes. Okay.
2: That, anyway, never, have you been It's there? Todd Browning. Moving out of the silent era
0: and into the era of early talkies and short films therein or they're from. We take ourselves to Warner Brothers in nineteen thirty one for the first of the series of golfing shorts. Starring golf legend Bobby Jones as we follow his lessons in How I Play Golf, followed by his lessons How to Break Ninety. And these eighteen Warner Brothers shorts from nineteen thirty one and thirty three are put together for the first time from Warner Brothers in a definitive set of all his Warner Brothers shorts, which not only teach you how to play golf, but show you some of the greatest movie celebrities of the time.
2: These were regular shorts shown before features. Today, these would naturally seem to fall on like, you know, maybe a cable show, sports show or a, a home video set on like instructional golf. Like we're all very familiar with that. But there was no sort of home format. There was no mat on golf at the time. No, no, definitely not when I'm on my knees. no Bobby
1: Jones, for those who don't know, the few who don't know, one of, if not the greatest golfers in American history, winner of the Grand Slam, founder of the Masters. He was as big a figure in American sports at the time as anyone could be. He was the
0: Michael Jordan of golf of the 30s. And golf was hot. Yeah. At that time. And so talkies were new, making short subjects that had sound. If you had made these films for silent theaters, wouldn't they worked. wouldn't have really yeah. worked yeah. because you had had in- intertitles to say, now I hold my arm like this. Well, that wouldn't have worked. So Warner Brothers and other studios were trying to find interesting ways to create compelling content that would be interesting in the theaters. Because going to the movie theater in those days, when you saw a feature uh, at least one if not two short subjects, a cartoon, a newsreel, trailers, and sometimes a live stage show and eventually double features.
2: This was a new thing, like a how-to. Absolutely. Uh, they, are,
0: they are instructional entertainment. Just like we have our Ripley's, believe it or not, shorts yep. collections uh, right. and the Vitaphone shorts. They were also Warner Brothers Mechanics Illustrated short subjects oh. based on the, the magazine. That were about cars and car repair and car racing. And robots. Everything you could possibly think of became... Paramount had a a series of short subjects based on Popular Science magazine. Uh, Short subjects
1: were a world into and of themselves. And these Bobby Jones shorts, they're not just... How tos, but they're little mini playlets with the how tos folded into. Well, these shorts are very entertaining.
2: That's what I noticed as somebody who's not uh, Mr. Golf, although I am into mini golf. Uh, Because it would start out and there'd be like a little narrative intro, and it would eventually involve a problem that Super Bobby Jones could solve. Exactly,
1: and the people having the problems were. Everyone who was anyone in Hollywood in the early sad era. Mr. Cagney. Mr. Robinson. Mr. Olin. Mr. Fields. And so, Ms. Blondell.
2: Because, like, the first one had a, a funny comedy bit where it was a guy not listening to his caddy. He should have been using an iron, as I found out later, but he was using a wood. And he kept hitting a tree, and the ball would bounce back and almost hit him. But, Matt, can you tell me what a niblick is? You know, I went. What the heck is a niblick? And I or watched a Brassy. That. I watched that, and I I still don't know, but I don't think it's used in mini golf, so I probably tuned no. right out. And,
0: and uh, I learned a lot from these shorts that I didn't know because I I am not a golfer, but as a Hollywood historian, I always found these shorts fascinating, and they've been used occasionally as extra content on some of our releases, but we've never been able to bring all of them together under the Warner imprimatur as a DVD collection and now we can finally do that through an archive which is very
2: exciting. So this is like a dad's
0: day gift. Oh, this is a dad's day gift, a Christmas day gift, a Thanksgiving day gift and any day gift for the golfer for the golfer
1: or cinephile or both.
0: And let us also remember that lots of ladies like to play golf, too. And no matter what your Ladies age who golf. Or, I can't quite imagine Dinosaur's How I Play Golf, but uh, hey, uh, it, you know, yeah, she had a yeah. whole tournament. I'd watch that. So let us travel from the glories of the golf course. We go to season number seven of Night Court, the beloved Warner Brothers television comedy, now in its seventh season. It's 1989.
1: Hello, 1990. Season 7 can be viewed as the... I don't know the proper word here. Uh, Near
2: the end, but cu- past the middle?
1: Well, yes, but also sort of culmination, because the, they originally intended to end the show in the 8th season, and they ended up doing it Let me just simplistically say, in a very Borgian manner, it is mm. 7 of nine. Oh, yes. There's some interesting <laughs> narrative things in this season. There's, there's a couple of mini... Uh, season-long arcs. Uh, John Aston of course, comes back playing Harry's, uh, doing a wacky roommate. Yes, doing the wacky roommate, Dan, which ties into the season-long arc of can Dan get an apartment?
2: Oh yeah, it was tougher in 1989, yeah, apparently. Yeah, I
1: won't spoil it, but this season also has a wedding.
2: Ooh,
1: a mullet and a wedding in the mm-hmm. same season. Yeah, and Mel um, Torney. And not to overwhelm folks, but it's true. Yakov Smirnoff is in this season.
0: Speaking of Yakov Smirnoff, there's a famous celebrity playing his father in that episode of Night Court.
2: Who would that be, Matt? (laughs) That would be Artie Johnson. But he was so convincingly Russian, he's not quite recognizable in this role. And
0: fans may remember him from laughing, and I believe he also occasionally contributed voices to the Flintstones. We're very pleased that fans have been so responsive to our releases of Night Court, which is why we've accelerated... Completing the series releases on DVD, bringing you Season 7 now with 8 and 9 to follow in the early part of 2013. So look for the three-disc set of Night Court Season 7 from WarnerArchive.com. Moving from the small screen to the big screen, we have six films that were available on DVD, went out of print, but they're coming back to availability courtesy of Warner Archive, beginning with 1943's Madame Curie let me just say that
2: a beautiful image of lovers gazing in a dark room at a glowing metal that's probably killing them that, that is
0: and and the, that's actually a very famous ecstasy, still from the movie yeah. it, where they're looking at the rock going oh.
2: It's, al- it's almost like opening the suitcase and right. the glow is coming out. Right. Now, uh, would that
1: be the Repo Man suitcase or the Kiss Me Deadly suitcase?
2: Uh, I prefer the Kiss Me Deadly suitcase, okay. or is it the Tarantino now, suitcase? Oh, very good, very good. That's they,
1: to that point, this
0: film, which stars Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon reuniting them after their triumphant uh, pairing in the Oscar-winning Best Picture Mrs. Miniver, This disc of Madame Curie has extra features on it, including an Oscar-nominated short subject called The Romance of Radium, (laughs) which is actually uh, the name—I guess they were thinking of calling Madame Curie that, too, but given that— It's romantic. Isn't it? it Very. This
1: this is a— And and in two short years, The Romance of Radium would go out the window.
2: I— (laughs) <laughs> it, it would be very different, I mean, because this is nuclear love right here. It's two nerds, they hook up because they both have a difficult it's time. It's not at
1: all notorious.
2: Re- relating, and they make beautiful signs together. And with that, thus changing the, the world. And in 1943, the outcome of the war.
0: The next film is also a love story from MGM that was filmed two years later and does also relate to the war. But it's about two people who fall in love during World War II and who have a time clock running against their romance before a soldier has to return to active duty. And this is Vincent Minnelli's very tender romance, The Clock, starring Judy Garland and Robert Walker.
1: Now, what I thought was really interesting about this when we we touched upon this in conversations is it's very much a product of the – what I would call the MGM musical – a-listers, but this is not a musical at all. In fact, right. if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the first film in which Judy doesn't sing at all. That's
0: correct. This is Arthur Freed produced this film. It was originally supposed to be directed by Fred Zinneman, who Judy Garland asked that Vincent Minnelli, to whom she was engaged at the time, instead be the director. So when filming began, uh, it was with Minnelli behind the camera. And uh, Fred Zinneman went on to make other great MGM films, as did Manelli. But uh, this film is, is really highly
2: regarded by cineasts as a very very sweet little film it's a war film that came near the end of the war that's really not about the war it's about can two people meet almost randomly and fall in love in a weekend
0: and how realistic is mgm's replica of grand central station
2: it looked good. Yeah. Ex- I mean, I'm imagining that the servicemen's entrance might have really been there, but I was trying to pick it up. I don't know if they had the smell it would down, be. but the- <laughs> no, it nobody had really taken to the streets and shot on the streets of New York up until this point. And uh,
0: there was a lot of second unit location uh, but, but photography it, done for this
2: film. But it looked good.
1: It's a great <laughs> <Yes>. small story <laughs> with very relatable, regular small people, unlike a lot of the Hollywood output. And, and yes. very much, it's almost.
0: It, Dan, you would make reference to this in other films that we've talked about this is before Dory Sherry came to MGM but it yeah, has it kind has of a that, Dory yeah, absolutely. feel to it right.
2: and you know what it's about a clock and time running out for love speaking of time running
1: out oh. your mystery minute is almost up have you solved the mystery of ten little Indians one little two little three little four little five little six little seven
2: I'll keep counting this, until you say ten. ten oh well I, we were waiting this is uh, based off of an Agatha Christie novel. Uh, one of her most famous.
1: Famous novels. Uh, this is the 1966 film adaptation starring Hugh O'Brien and Fabian. And, and Shirley Shirley's. Eaton. And Shirley Eaton. And uh, as I alluded to, this film has a great device where, as we near the reveal... Yeah. The film pauses and lets you briefly review the events of the film and attempt to guess the identity of the killer before the film goes and, ahead and tells and this you. D- there DVD, was
2: no pause button then. This yes.
0: DVD has that footage reinstated because traditional television viewings removed it.
2: So the setup on Ten Little <coughs> Indians is a little different than other Agatha Christie's because... We don't have a hero
1: detective. Correct. We have victims scrambling to solve the mystery before they are the
2: victims of it. And they were all taken up by gondola to a ski chalet. Not unreminiscent to me of a it's, James it's Bond It's very villain.
1: stylish 60s Speaking bondish mystery yeah. yeah There's turtlenecks and whatnot.
2: It's like... And uh, medallions. On Her Majesty's Secret Service ski chalet to me. Yes.
0: And they have all the time in the world to solve the mystery.
2: And they get knocked off one by one. When Fabian, well, I won't ruin it.
0: No, you can't give the spoilers away. You can't get you. I'm not. I'm not. We're happy to say that Ten Little Indians is now back. All ten of them are now
1: back, available (laughs) on DVD. And fans of our Halloween releases of Vengeance and Face of Fu Manchu should carefully, carefully listen to this film because. A very famous actor lends his voice uncredited to it. See if you can figure... Well, I guess I kind of gave out who it was, but... Yes, Christopher Lee. Listen for Christopher Lee's voice. We move to 1968's
0: The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which features a wonderful breakthrough performance
2: from Sandra Locke and Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin plays a deaf-mute who can read lips and speak sign language, but he is... A very lonely and isolated man, and he only has one other friend who is also a deaf-mute, but who can't read lips.
1: And that is played by Chuck McCann, who Saturday Morning fans might remember as one half of the far-out Space Nuts.
2: He doesn't have white hair in yeah. this one, though. But he does a great job, and their relationship is played out very silently. Like, when when they're doing uh, sign language, there's no translation or anything. You have to really watch closely and you see both of them like their their one outlet is that they can talk to each other, but nobody really can listen to them.
1: And uh, the film updates the action from Carson McCullough's classic novel up to the sixties, but maintains very true to the to the heart, so to speak, of the tale. Not only Sandra Locke, there's some other notable uh, actors in the film, such as Stacy Keach mm-hmm. and Cicely Tyson. Alan Arkin is truly Extraordinary, and when you the guy needs more credit for what an amazing range he's capable of, (laughs) and I'm not even getting into his career as a folk singer and songwriter.
2: This was a a very uh deep film, in that they didn't soulful, but what we're we're looking for is soulful. He was
0: being appreciated at that time after the Rushes are coming in 1966. That was really his that was the outright comedy side, which people are more familiar with. That was the breakthrough movie that really popularized him so that this more subtle, depth-filled actor really surprised a lot of people at the time.
2: It really is worth it just for the performance, and the writing and the setting are very uh, fully realized on the screen.
1: As they are in the next film, 1978's Corvette Summer. And
0: I think that—I don't know if uh, Alan Arkin was a member of the group theater or had worked with Stella Adler— or had been part of the Actors Studio with these Strasberg. But The Method had to have been a part of The Hardest Lonely Hunter. And so Corvette Summer is really, I think, just the pinnacle of method acting at its finest.
1: I you know, hear that Mark it's, Hamill learned how to drive for this film. I,
0: I think he actually went and stood in line at the DMV to get his learner's permit. What with his learner's permit in his pocket, he swerved to avoid a large tree.
2: One of you know, the most beloved films of all time, and maybe of all time to come, Star Wars, and you are the young hero. And your next role is uh, probably a very important step in one's career. It was the 70s. The very viable,
1: previously known as uh, Hot Rod films, were still very much in vogue. It's, Eat my dust! Yeah, I mean, they were... This... There was, Roger Corman had a whole subgenre career churning out fast driving movies, so... I mean, this is an MGM film, so it was a little surprising, but I remember as a kid, I flocked to see Corvette Summer because it had a Corvette in it, and it had Luke Skywalker in it. And And Corvette Summer, for me,
0: in that era, meant going to Corvettes and buying records. For the summer? For those of you who grew up in New York in the 70s and 80s, Corvettes was a great place now to buy I, records.
2: I was too young anyway. to have seen this film. This is so, true. So you this were. was a wonderful rediscovery, uh, rediscovery, but discovery for me of Annie Potts before designing women. Oh my! It is really a love song C- to to cars, it can uh, they got exhaust, lip yes. gloss, yes. burnouts, yes, oh, Water beds. Water beds. Be. Nope. custom vans, yes, auto shop. Give me
1: back my car. No No lava lamps. And definitely uh, something of a spiritual ancestor to Pee-wee's big adventure.
2: Yes, because he goes on the quest to find his stolen Corvette. It's not really even his. It belongs to the school, but he put so much work and love into this car. Like
1: Pee-wee did his bike.
2: Yeah. Right. And, like, he had given up, like, his schoolwork, like, everything. Like, he poured his heart and soul into it, and it was about the purity of heart that he had, and... Then when he meets a woman along the way, she recognizes that purity in him. Boy meets car. Yeah. uh, Boy loses car.
0: Boy Boy sings a song and gets car. Yep. Oh, he doesn't sing in this movie. No. So from Corvette Summer, we then go to basically halfway around the world to God's own country, Australia, for a charming comedy that has a niche following even to this day called the dish.
1: And now, the, that's the dish a, in this case is a, a satellite, satellite dish. dish. This film uh, details uh, Australia's very crucial involvement in uh, NASA's space program. The moon and, landing specifically. And, and the need to set up relay stations around the globe so we could stay in touch with our brave men up in space.
2: And how they had the wherewithal to keep their cool... While they may have uh, accidentally lost the most important space mission of all time.
1: Film star Sam Neill alongside a cast of quirky character greats.
2: and They they do a nice job of recreating 1969 Australia. A
0: lot of people really love this movie. This is a very fervent cult following. You
1: know, starting, as I said before, you know, there's a whole... Series of, of what I would call four Bill Forsyth-inspired films from Gregory's Girl on where people were allowed to make these sort of fun, offbeat, marginal stories about little corners right. of Western civilization. And there was often sort of a, a funny little hook to the story, like in this case, you know, covering up what was going on around the dish. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that people see these films and want to see them again and remember them so vividly because it gives you a very... It gives you a chance to live in very different shoes for a while. So one would say this is a very
0: tasty dish.
1: Oh, excellent. Well, you don't have to. This
0: dish will leave you wanting seconds. And that would make you think that we're serving up another season of Alice, but that was last week. (laughs) But we want to remind you that Alice Season 2 and Alice Season 1 are available from the Warner Archive Collection. Alongside Shazam! That's right, and so many other things. And today we have a consumer letter from
1: Casper the Friendly Ghost. That's to say that none of you wrote us anything, you know, and while, we're going to cry.
2: While we were talking, I sent out a tweet. I tuned out at some point, point. and I said he can talk. Oh, while well, we the same were time. actually
1: slaving over this podcast, you were playing on your phone. Yes, and I'm folding my arms and scowling, people.
2: Well, desperate,
1: I, desperate for a response from someone out there.
2: I sent a tweet, and I said. Look, we didn't get any letters. Anyone have a question? And this was what we got. This is from Alexander. Do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk?
1: (laughs) That was it. That that, was all we got. Is that for each of us? Do you feel lucky? Uh, I
2: I don't know. I I do because, wow, I got a question. Um, But Alexander shouldn't because he will not be receiving any promotional items or anything like that because he did not send us a question of that great depth in through the mail system.
0: Also remind you what the shipping address is for the letter that you should send us so that Matt doesn't have to tweet for another question.
2: Yes. If you're feeling lucky, please send us a snail mail message to Warner Archive Podcast B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California 91522. (laughs) You don't have to be from America to write us, but you should write it in English because otherwise. Because no we're problem. ignorant. Yeah, because but yeah. we're We from will America. take
0: any language as long as it's in an envelope with a stamp.
1: Yeah, you yes. can read try, it. A, yes, we're Augmented us. reality devices to translate for and us. And if you send That's the true. letter in Klingon,
0: you get twice the amount of oh, prizes. Yes,
1: extra wow. points for Klingon, for sure. Esperanto as well.
2: Also, yes. Also acceptable.
0: Let's wrap it up and say we thank you for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast and hope you will look for the next one. I am George Feltenstein. I am Matt Patterson. Your mystery
1: minute is almost up.
0: Please look forward to the next Warner Archive Collection podcast and thanks for listening.